0: A very warm welcome to the Word Live podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today we're going back to our evening celebrations in 2016 when we looked at how Jesus talks about himself in John's Gospel and how he describes himself in the most wonderful I am statements. I hope they make Jesus bigger and more wonderful in your heart and mind. Let's listen together.
1: So I'll read John chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. And we're going to carry on from verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Lord. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. And said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he's been there for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I've said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. I'm going to invite Richard now to come and share that word with us and let me just pray as you prepare. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we see in this story uh, the real Jesus and we pray for Richard now as he opens it up to us that Jesus would come to us, speak to us and that we would really taste who he is and know him in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. Thank you, Anna. What on earth are you meant to say to a grieving friend who tells you they've lost a loved one? I heard from a really good mate of mine, a Christian friend, last week, and he told me that uh, his wife's sister had just died, leaving behind school aged kids and a grieving husband. What does one say? And because we've all been there, that's what makes this comment in John 11 so shocking. Apart from Jesus, I've never heard of a single character in literature, let alone in in history, stand in front of grieving relatives and say this, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Unless Jesus is who he claims to be, we should be utterly furious at these words. What utter arrogance and hard-hearted conceit. Jesus would have to be a totally selfish megalomaniac or else some utter deluded madman to make this claim and then to be hounded to his death and crucified for it. Unless, of course, he is the resurrection, and the life. Either way, these are simply staggering words, aren't they, to say to dear Martha, the grieving sister of Lazarus. Now, Martha and her sister, as we know, along with Lazarus, they're very good friends of Jesus. He loves them. He respects them, which is why Martha feels able to make herself so vulnerable. Oh, Jesus, if you'd come here when I first told you Lazarus was sick... He would not have died. What she's saying here is, Jesus, why didn't you come when I first told you? This mix of remorse and anger, it's common, isn't it, in the face of death and can be an important part of our grieving. Death snatches brothers from sisters, mothers from their children, and children from their mothers. It devastates whole families and even communities. My sister's 11-year-old son died around Easter time in 2008, and I was in church with my sister Jane 10 days ago, singing resurrection songs on Easter Sunday. And eight years on, even as her little brother, I found myself glancing over to make sure she was okay. And it was very striking. I could see, easily see the mix of loss and comfort, that exquisite blend of grief and hope etched on her face as she sang of Jesus' victory over death. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Dear friends, those of you here who have buried a brother or sister a daughter or son, a husband or wife, mother or father, or for that matter, any loved one, you'll know instinctively what Jesus is promising here is no small thing. As C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. I think we'd agree there can be nothing moderately important about death. We we need to just feel something of the enormity of what Jesus is saying here, however familiar these words may be. Death breaks our hearts, it snatches the ones we love most, the ones with whom we shared holidays, our innermost thoughts, the ones to whom we're knitted by thousands of memories. And death also casts such a long shadow, doesn't it, over our lives now. And it makes us question if anything is worthwhile. And it's the uncompromising inevitability of death that makes it such a terrible enemy. It's going to get us, and it's going to get every single person that we love. It's very interesting. In life, we often don't fear the right things. There are many other things that are relatively unlikely. Such as Donald Trump being elected US President, or Arsenal suddenly making a comeback and winning the premiership. But there's nothing as certain as death and taxes, as Oscar Wilde is meant to have said on his deathbed. So Jesus is speaking into a problem that wise men down countless millennia have humbly wrestled with. Death has this incredible ability to mock our present joys and achievements. I love Leo Tolstoy's short story, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And he explores this big, big question. His central character, Pacom, he's the master of a house, he's listening in to his wife and her sister, and they're asking this question, we shall never grow rich, but we shall always have enough to eat, shan't we? And then Pacom. Pekom, he's a bit greedier than his wife and his sister. And he says this to himself, It's perfectly true. Busy as we are from childhood tilling Mother Earth, we peasants have no time to let any nonsense settle in our heads. Our only trouble is we haven't land. If I had plenty of land, I shouldn't fear the devil himself. So he approaches this simple tribe of people, the Baksha's. Uh, The Bashkas, rather. And they say, you can have as much land as you walk around in a day for a thousand rubles, which is virtually nothing. And so, Pakon, he sets off from uh, the top of a hill. And the leader of the Bashkas says, look, I'm going to put my fox-skinned hat down here. You start from here at sunrise. You get back here at sunset. And whatever earth you've marked, whatever land, it's all yours provided you get back here. Fail to be back here by the sun sets, and you lose everything. So Pekahom, he's seriously excited. He marches three miles in an easy direction, digs a hole, marks his patch. He then tries to square it off a bit, and he goes all day. And then he suddenly realizes he's ten miles from the start, and he's nowhere near in a position to get back, just walking at the pace he has. So he throws off his coat, he throws down his cap, he throws off his boots, throws away his food, even his drink, and he starts running towards the beginning of his journey. The only thing he holds to is his shovel to make his last mark. And then he gets to the foot of the hill. All he has to do is just get up the hill, and all the land is his. But then he looks and sees the sun set behind the hill and the people on the hill waiting for him seem to be jeering and shouting and he just bows his head in despair but then he looks again and he notices actually the people are in sunlight the sun hasn't set it hasn't yet gone down it's just gone slightly behind the hill so with one last effort he runs up the mountain and plants the spade right next to the hat and claims thousands of acres All that land is his. How much land does a man need? He's got more than he'll ever need. But with the exertion, he has a massive heart attack and drops down dead. And his servant takes his spade and digs a hole in his land, six foot by two foot. That's Tolstoy's answer to his own question how much land does a man need? And Jesus asked a similar question. If you gain the whole world and lose your life, what do you have? Absolutely nothing. And yet the very same man said this, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? If we do believe this is true, everything changes. We, can, we cannot leave here the same again. For starters, we have the most momentous news. Let's not m- imagine this was an easy thing for, for Martha and for Mary. They knew the finality of death. The Bible's not shy, is it, about pointing out the absurdity and emptiness that death brings into our lives. The preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes, he points to the fact that we have these great aspirations to achieve so much, and yet we come into the world naked, we leave it naked. And if we desire to gain, then we're going to go empty-handed, meaningless, meaningless. What should it have profited Lazarus if he died a very rich man? Jesus would say, nothing. Nothing. Death stalks us, death mocks us, all our greatest achievements are brought to nothing. Do you know what the Apostle Paul said about all this? He said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not the resurrection and the life, then when we are dead, we are done for. So just eat, drink, and be merry. The writer of Ecclesiastes puts it like this. I've seen the burden God's laid on the human race. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human hearts. He's made it so we find things beautiful in their time. Mary and Martha would have longed to have grown old with Lazarus, perhaps seen each other's children grow up. So much they wanted to do and see together. Eternity in our hearts, a, a beautiful world to experience and yet... So few years in our bodies. Now, obviously, Mary and Martha knew that Lazarus would die one day, but surely not now. It just seems too soon. It seems too cruel to go now. April is the cruelest month, according to T.S. Eliot, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Things are beautiful in their time. And at this time of year, April, memory and desire is stirred. Winter's pretty much behind us. Hope wells up in us, but death will ultimately mock all our hopes and desires. I don't know whether you've ever seen the film Blade Runner, where Roy, the replicant, he knows he's dying, but he doesn't want to die. He has people he loves. He finds things beautiful in their time, and in his final breath, he says these words. Time. All those moments, and he's seen some amazing things, all those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. Time to die. After losing a close friend, Alfred Lord Tennyson penned these words. Behold, I know not anything... I can but trust that good will fall at last, far off, at last to all. So runs my dream, but what am I? An infant crying in the night, an infant crying for the light, and with no language but a cry. This is how Mary and Martha felt crying during those three nights when Lazarus was dead, crying, hoping the next day maybe Jesus would come, but he doesn't, and it's too late. If the early Christians had not gathered around an empty tomb, the claim of Jesus would be regarded as the rantings of a madman or an egotistical liar. But the affirmation of 2,000 years of world history of an empty tomb, of millions of people following the resurrected Jesus, tells us that Jesus has defeated sin and death and hell. And so he says to all of us, I am the resurrection and the life. So we have, first of all, the enormity of the claim, but also the compassion of the claim. The obvious but important thing to say here is that Jesus doesn't respond to the death of his friend Lazarus with some kind of serene detachment. These are the words of one who loved Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. Everything significant in this passage is motivated by love. Look at chapter 11 again. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. And when the sisters sent word to Jesus, they knew two things. One, they knew that Jesus loved Lazarus and loved them too. But secondly, they knew that Jesus could do something about it, they knew that Jesus had form for turning up at funerals and ruining them. Now, we've heard of strange people called wedding crashers who blagged their way to wedding receptions. And I'm not talking about the clergy here. I'm talking about total strangers. Well, Jesus turned up at people's funerals and made whoever was in the casket walk home. He did it with the widow of Nain's son. As for Jairus' daughter... Well, he just went into their private grief, into the bedroom, and restored their 12-year-old girl to them. So Mary and Martha knew that Jesus not only loved them, but he had the power to do something about it. So when in verse 3 they said, Lord, the one you love is sick, they're not merely sending news, are they? It's a cry for help. It means, Lord, please come quickly, Lazarus is dying. And Jesus knows what it means, which is why verses 5 and 6 are all the more surprising. We're meant to be surprised by Jesus' words. Verses 5 and 6 are meant to read, surely, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so he came quickly and restored Lazarus to them. That's how we'd expect it to read. But no, it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so therefore... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. How can Jesus' delay possibly be a sign of God's love? Have you ever asked that question? I know I have. Oh, Lord, please hear me. The one I love is mentally ill. Please intervene. Dear Lord, my child, my daughter is desperately ill with an eating disorder. Please don't let this go on any longer. Lord, please act now. Lord, my marriage, my finances, I just don't feel I can go on like this. Lord, please answer. Don't delay. It's the most natural prayer in such times. We say, Lord, come speedily. So how can delay possibly be a sign of love? Well, in the verse before, Jesus gives us the clue. He says, this illness will not end in death, verse 4. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. It's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified in it. Now, this is shocking. Jesus is asking us to trust him that we are far more blessed, ultimately more happy, when we seek God's glory above all else. And it's out of love that God will throughout our lives choose a course of action that brings most glory to him, even though it means a delay in relief to our suffering and our grief. And according to Jesus, we are going to be most happy when we are most satisfied in God. And we'll be most satisfied in God when he is most glorified in our lives. Jesus loved Martha and Mary, so he stayed where he was. That is really hard, practically, isn't it? Instinctively to accept that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus so much that he delayed to come and help. Now, Mary and Martha's grief was real, they didn't know it was only going to be four days. Our momentary and present sufferings are deep and real and raw. However, whether it's four days or four years or 40 years that we suffer real loss. But Jesus says here to all of us that for his greater glory, he will delay. I'm confident that one day in eternity, Jesus will demonstrate to my sister and to her husband, how the death of their 11-year-old son brought greater glory to God, even greater glory than healing him would have done. I've no idea how, but I'm confident he'll do that. I know that Jesus doeth all things well. In eternity, Jesus will do the same for all of us. He sees the beginning from the end. And what most glorifies him is ultimately the most loving thing for us. One day in eternity, with great gentleness, he'll say to some of us here, this is why you remain single. I know you long to be married and to have children. Or the reason you struggled with same-sex attraction was because that brought more glory to me than being delivered from it. And many of us here nurse broken hearts and shattered dreams. And Jesus says, I'm delaying because I love you. Well, it seems an astonishing thing to say, but I'm sure we realize that if somehow God could bring the greatest glory out of the brutal murder of the Lord Jesus, then surely he can do that in our grief. In our agony, Surely if there was ever a time when a loving father was going to answer a prayer, it was when Jesus in Gethsemane said, Father, please deliver this cup of wrath from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And God the Father answered Jesus' prayer with a deafening silence. The Father loved Jesus so much that he was going to allow his son to be glorified and bring glory to him by going to the cross. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Well, if we do, it changes everything. So we not only see the enormity of this claim, but we see the compassion Jesus has for us in our pain. Jesus experienced the raw grief of Martha and Mary, and when he saw for himself the tomb of his beloved friend, verse 35, Jesus wept. This may be the shortest verse in Scripture, but it's like a pocket battleship. It's full of force and power. This is the same word used outside of the Bible that would refer to the snorting of a, a charging horse in battle. Jesus' weeping is a cry of rage against the imposter called death. Even though Jesus deliberately delayed, even though Jesus may be delaying in your circumstances, Jesus is not serene and calm at the evil and death and suffering and the grief the pain that you're going through, the appalling targeted murder of 70 brothers and sisters in Christ 10 days ago in Lahore. 20 of them were children, targeted because they were Christians. Jesus is snorting with fury at death and all it's done to his creation and to all of us and our brothers and sisters across the world whom he loves. So we see the enormity of the claim, we see the compassion of the one making it, and lastly we see the power of the claim. Jesus waited deliberately to bring Lazarus back from the dead until he'd been dead four days. But why? How would Jesus raising Lazarus after four days bring more glory to God and show more love to Mary and Martha than if he'd have come instantly? stopped him dying in the first place. Well, according to the Jewish tradition of Ben-Kafra, grief reaches its height on the third day. There's an old Jewish belief that the spirit of the departed hovers over the tomb for three days and can, up to that point, be reunited with the body. And, of course, uh, there were instances of people suddenly emerging from graves, some sort of resuscitation. And in certain parts of the um, uh, third world, in rural areas, we do have this sort of thing happening. But after three days, bodily composition begins. It's a lost cause, even if someone like Jesus turns up. Hence the comment from both Mary and Martha, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died And also the comment from the Jews in verse 37. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? No one has any expectation of a miracle at this stage. No one at all, not even Martha. Verse 39. When Jesus suggests removing the boulder, she says, practical as ever, bless her, she says, but Lord, there'll be an odour, a bad odour. Or as the King James puts it, Lord, by this time he stinketh. The spirit has left the body. The body is decaying. And in the smelly Mediterranean climate, Martha realizes there's nothing to be gained from opening the tomb. Martha and Mary and the grieving Jewish friends all believe Jesus could have kept Lazarus from dying. Maybe within that short space after dying, revived him. But it's all over. Then Jesus said, verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead men came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen, and a cloth around his face. And Jesus says, Let him go. Astonishing. Jesus clearly is the resurrection and the life. So, in summary, as we finish, verse 25 this claim is not only enormous, but it's compassionate. It was out of love for Martha and Mary that he delayed so they could see the glory of God. But most importantly, it was a powerful claim. So we see on the PowerPoint, the enormity, the compassion, and the power of the claim. Jesus, who spoke the word into being, can call the dead out of their graves, verse 5. But what he's actually asking of us is slightly more than do we believe that one day there will be a resurrection of the dead. Because Martha, when she was asked this question, do you believe that they will never die? Do you believe I'm the resurrection? She sort of says, yeah, I kind of believe there is a resurrection of the dead on the last day. Something Jesus talks about in John chapter five. But what he's actually saying here is Martha, don't have an abstract belief in an event in history, however important it is, that the dead will be raised. But I want you to have a personal belief that it's I who am the life. It is I who will raise the dead. Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. I will be the one who call the bodies out of their grave. Martha, focus not on an event in the future Focus on me now, here. As Carson puts it in his excellent commentary, and I quote, Just as he not only gave the bread from heaven, but is himself the bread of life, so also he not only raises the dead on the last day, but is himself the resurrection and the life. There is neither resurrection or eternal life outside of him. So Jesus in offering eternal life that begins now and cannot be ended by death is able to say to the thief on the cross not one day you will rise when the dead are called out of their graves no today you will be with me in paradise if we believe in Jesus right now we have eternal life welling up like a spring within now and for all eternity. Do you believe this? Because as far as John is concerned, this is the whole reason he's written his gospel. And after recording the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus, John writes this. These things have been written, John 20, 31, these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing... You might have life. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Amen.
1: This talk was recorded at Word Alive 2016. Word Alive is here to serve the Church in reaching the world. Our desire is to resource individuals and churches and empower them in their mission to communities and the wider world. For further information and to hear more talks from this and previous events, please visit our website at wordaliveevent.org.